0: This is maybe the strangest resurrection day ever. Um, All around the world today, people will not encounter slick bands in churches doing everything to the highest possible standard. They will not see nifty PowerPoint or keynote presentations. Uh, They will not be able to view terrific dramatic performances of the Passion of the Christ in, in cathedrals and in town squares. People today will only encounter the Word and the Spirit. That's all we've got. And maybe today is a good reminder that that's all we've got. Uh, That everything else, all the other good things that we use in order to, to communicate God's Word, God's message to people, all of those things right now have been taken away from us. And we are left with the Word and the Spirit. And that's a good place to be. Last night, I was really moved by the words of the Queen. She said, Easter isn't cancelled. Indeed, we need Easter as much as ever. And if ever the world needed Resurrection Day, if ever the world needed hope, it is right now in 2020. John chapter 1, verse 1, and I'm only going to read um, a couple of verses from from John 1, and then we're going to jump into Genesis, and then come back to John. John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. Now, it doesn't take a huge knowledge of the Bible to figure out what other book of the Bible John is referring to as he opens up his gospel. At the start of verse 1 and at the end of verse 2, he uses the magic words in the beginning. And as soon as you read John's gospel or start reading John's gospel, you immediately are being told, if you want to understand Jesus, you've got to understand Genesis. That by using those three words and by speaking about how all things were made through him and that he was there, he was the word that was there at the beginning, John is telling you, listen, you want to understand this man, you've got to go back. And understand the story of Genesis, and particularly the story of creation. And all I want to do here this morning, I have one point, and the point is this. Jesus has done the work of new creation. New creation. And that this raises all through John's gospel. What I want to do is go back and look add a couple of things in the first few chapters of Genesis and just basically hang them out there in the, in the background. So you can turn now to Genesis chapter 1. I want to pull out a few things from Genesis 1 and just, just hang them out and then go to John and take a wee mosey through John and slow it away down at the cross and at the resurrection and look at how John presents Jesus as having done the work of new creation. Genesis, of course, is the book of beginnings, the book of creation. Jesus does the work of new creation. So Genesis chapter 1, not much to say in these verses. Just want to put them out and and let them be in our minds as we then go into John. Chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. So you see obvious similarities there to what John has done in the first verse, a couple of verses of of his book. I want you just to to hold out in front of you the fact that God created. I want you to, to see the words formless and empty and the word darkness. So we have this scene of chaos and darkness. I want you to see that it's God's word that comes into that with creative power and brings order to it all. I want you to see that it's the first day of the week. So just hold those things in the back of your mind. In verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1, we read that God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the livestock over all the earth, and the creatures that move along the ground. And that was the sixth day. So hold on to the fact that on the sixth day, God created man. Now into Genesis 2, and the start of Genesis 2 um, talks about the Sabbath, the very first Sabbath, when God, after six days of creating, took a rest. Verse 1 says, and again, listen carefully to the words, it's all, this is all going to come back together later on. Verse 1, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. The word completed means finished. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work, and he blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So we've got a picture of the Sabbath. We've got a picture of God after six days of creating He rests because his work is finished. Further on in chapter 2, we read again about the creation of man in verse 7. Note, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. That was the raw material that he used to form man, the dust from the ground. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The word breath there is the same word in Hebrew as the word spirit. It's the word ruach, breath, spirit, wind, all the same word. So we have this picture of God taking the dust from the ground and forming a man, a human being, and then breathing his life into that human being. In verse 8, we read that God put the man in the garden and that in the garden there were trees. There are two prominent trees in the center of the garden. There was the tree of life, from which the man was to come and eat and receive life. And then there was the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which he was told, don't eat from that one. So we have our man in the garden with these trees, and particularly this tree of life in the background. In Genesis 3, you have what's called the fall, where sin entered the equation. Satan entered the equation, and death entered the equation. In verse 7, you've got the fact that the eyes of them both were opened and they realized they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. So we have the picture of God looking for people in a garden. People who have been separated from him by sin. And in the garden, God is walking around looking for them. And then finally, towards the end of chapter 3, the outcome of all of this, of their choice to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, is that God says in verse 22 of Genesis 3, The man has now become like one of us. Knowing good and evil, he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, also sometimes translated cast him out, After he cast the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, those are angels, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So there was this source of life in the garden, this tree, but because the man and the woman had eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they were cast out of the garden and the way back into the garden was then protected by angels so that they could not get back in. And those are some things in Genesis. Let's now go to John, please. John chapter 1. And as I mentioned earlier, in the first few verses of John chapter 1, straight away you are brought into a theme of creation. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God through him all things were made so straight away that theme is there we read also in colossians paul says in colossians 1 that all things were made by jesus and all things were made for him now i want i want you to see that john is obsessed with genesis okay and he loves the number seven he loves to present things in batches of seven because there are seven days in the week and he wants to reflect the week of creation that God did in Genesis. He wants to put that into his gospel and have it there bubbling under the surface the whole way through so people know what Jesus is actually doing. So there's two times in John's gospel where he presents a a sequence of seven consecutive days. Let me just show you. In chapter 1, verse 19 uh, we start to read about John the Baptist, and that's the, f- the first day of a, of a sequence of seven. Verse 29 says, the next day, that's day number two. Verse 35 says, the next day, that's day number three. Verse 43 says, the next day, that's day number four. And chapter 2, verse 1 says, on the third day, or three days later, that's day number seven. So John has opened up his gospel immediately referring to creation and immediately setting before us a week, a sequence of seven days. He's done that intentionally. He actually does that again in chapter 12. Don't bother turning to it, but at the start of chapter 12, as he moves to the end of his story, he says that it was six days before the Passover, and that's really important because John is going to present Jesus dying on the Passover as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So he, he has at the start of his gospel a sequence of seven days, and at the end of his gospel he's got another sequence of seven days. He loves the number seven. He presents seven signs in his gospel. Seven mighty deeds. Jesus turns water into wine. He heals an official's son. He heals a paralyzed man at a pool. He feeds the multitude. He walks on water. He heals a blind man. And he raises Lazarus from the dead. Seven signs in particular. John could have chosen many more. The other gospel writers have other ones that John didn't record. But he chose seven. Because he's trying to make a point that Jesus is doing the work of new creation. So John is going to weave in the theme of creation all through his book. He also records seven, I am sayings of Jesus. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Seven carefully chosen. That's not a fluke. It's not a coincidence. It's not a mistake. He chose seven. In John chapter 2, whenever the the water is turned into wine, there are six stone water pots that are filled up to the brim. And I believe that Jesus actually turned the well water into wine and that the well is the seventh pot. And again, you see the sequence of six and a perfect seventh. In uh, John chapter 4, Jesus meets a woman who has been with six different men she's had five husbands, she's with a man who is not her husband, six men, and now at the well she is with man number seven, who will bless her and give her living water and treat her in a way completely differently to what any other man has treated her before. Do you get the picture? John loves Genesis, and John wants us to see new creation in everything Jesus does. In fact, in in John chapter 9, whenever Jesus heals a blind man, he does something really bizarre. And I can remember for years, trying to think, why did Jesus do that? He spat on the ground, and he mixed the dust of the ground with a spittle to produce clay and then he rubs the clay on the man's eyes. And I cannot deny the fact that for a long time I read that and I thought, that is absolutely mingling. Why did he do that? Well, I know now why he did it. He did it because God in Genesis 2 used dust from the ground to make man. And Jesus, as he heals this man, takes dust from the ground and uses it to heal him. John can't help himself. He's obsessed with creation and he's obsessed with new creation. <clears throat> let, let's go to John 19 and let you know let's pick out a a few thoughts from John 19 and 20 because I want you to know <clears throat> why Jesus died. I want you to know why he was resurrected. It was not it was not simply so that our sins could be forgiven and that we could go to heaven when we die. Of course, he died to forgive our sins. Of course, we will go to heaven when we die until the new, the new or the, the final resurrection takes place. But was that it or is there more? And I want you to see there is more that Jesus is doing the work of new creation. In John chapter 19 and verse 5, it's Passover day. John has very carefully designed his gospel that Jesus dies on Passover day. Like the lambs, back in the, in the Exodus, there's a story of how if you took the blood of the lamb and you put it on the doorpost of your house, that God would pass over. And that same language of passing over feeds into the New Testament writers where when God sees the blood, he passes over and he forgives sin. On the sixth day of creation, God created man. And on the sixth day of the week that John is referring to in John chapter 19, Pilate in 19.5 brings Jesus out and he says, Behold the man. Here is the man. And it's about three o'clock on Friday afternoon. And I I want you to use your imagination here. I want you to picture the scene in Jerusalem. Jesus was crucified outside the city. There was darkness again, like we saw in Genesis. There was darkness all over the land. And what's going on in the city at that moment, in every home in Jerusalem, the Sabbath is about to begin. Because Jewish people reckoned that the day started, they were different from us, they reckoned the day started when the sun went down rather than the way we reckon the day starts when the sun comes up. So on Friday, round about sundown, that was the beginning of the Sabbath. And the Sabbath ran from sunset on Friday through to sunset on Saturday. So as Jesus hangs on the cross, and there is darkness all over the land, I picture this as a a movie maker, um, I'm not a movie maker, but I picture it as one, and, and a picture of the the camera focusing in on Jesus on the cross, and the darkness descending, and Friday is coming to an end, and the Sabbath is about to begin, and the camera pulls away from Jesus on the cross outside the city and goes into the city and starts moving down the streets and looking in through the windows of houses, and as the camera looks in through the window of a house there is a scene around a kitchen table where a father is sitting with his children because this is what would have happened in every Jewish house at the beginning of Sabbath. A father is sitting, he has gathered his children and his wife, his family around him, and he starts to read from God's Word. He probably doesn't have a scroll, he definitely doesn't have a Bible, he's probably reading from memory... And what he reads at the start of every Sabbath, candles are lit, and he reads these verses to his family. From Genesis 2, verse 1, the heavens and the earth were finished in all their vast array. By the seventh day, the Sabbath, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And then the camera pulls out of that home and it moves down the street, and it goes up to the window of another home, and it looks in there. And in there, the scene is the same. There is a father sitting at a table with his family. There's food on the table, there's candles lit, and the father is starting the Sabbath with his family. And from memory, he reads these words, the heavens and the earth were finished, get that, finished, in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested. And then the camera pulls out of that window and moves down the street. And it's going on in every single house in Jerusalem at that moment. Friday evening, sun is setting, darkness has fallen. And in every home, they are declaring that the work of creation was finished. And therefore, we will rest. And then the camera pulls back out of the city again, goes back to the cross, goes back to, the Je- to, to Jesus on the cross. The other gospel writers record that there was, he, he gave out a loud cry, but don't record what it was. But John records it. In John 19 and verse 30, Jesus says, it is finished. And I don't believe that was the whimper of a dying man. As I said, the other Gospels record that this was a loud cry. I believe that Jesus summoned up every ounce of strength he had left in his body. And I believe he roared out, it is finished. And in Jerusalem, you've got all of these religious people who are reading about God's work of creation being finished before they take their Sabbath rest. And on the cross, Jesus roars out over the city, it is finished. And what is actually finished is the question. What is it that is finished? Is it it the cry of relief that finally his suffering is over? No, I don't think it is. It is not the whimper of a dying man. Is, Is he saying that the tyranny of sin over people's lives is over? Yes, it is, but I don't believe that's what he's referring to. Is he saying that the devil's power over people is over? Yes, it is, but I don't believe that's what he's referring to. When Jesus at that moment, and he picked his moment, and John picked his moment, and whenever Jesus shouts, it is finished, he is tying that right in to the work of God in creation. And what has finished at this moment on Good Friday on the cross, as Jesus gave up his spirit, believe you me, nobody killed him, He gave up his spirit. He says earlier in John, I lay my life down when I want. I take it up again when I want. He gave up his life. Nobody can say I killed Jesus. Jesus gave his life. He allowed his life to be taken from him. He gave up his life. And at that moment, he said it is finished. And what was finished was the work of new creation. Read the Bible. <laughs> read Genesis. Read John. Jesus was not just saying, bless us. I'm so glad this is over. It's been a hard day. No, he is making a declaration to all of creation, to all of humanity, through all of history. I have done the work of new creation with my cross. It is finished. On the sixth day in Genesis 1, Man was created. And on the sixth day in John 19, Pilate has brought Jesus out and said, Behold the man. And Jesus has then died on the cross in order that man could be recreated. That the effect of the fall and the effect of sin could be taken away. And that we could receive new creation and new life, and be redeemed, and be restored into the image of God again. I wonder, are you tormented sometimes by guilt? Are you tormented by sin, past actions, past choices, even past attitudes that you might have held towards God, towards Jesus, towards the Church? And you feel that those things cannot be taken away, and that that. You, recreation and new creation is not something that you can receive. I want you to hear Jesus' words. It is finished. The old has gone and the new has come. Day six, the work of new creation is finished. Good Friday. Day seven, he effectively rests in the grave on the Sabbath. And then there's another day, day eight. And I want you to notice what John does in chapter 20 and verse 1. If I asked you what day Jesus was raised from the dead, one of the things that might come to your mind is the third day, because Jesus himself told the disciples earlier in the Gospels that the Son of Man would be He would suffer, and he would be killed, and on the third day, he would rise again. So we have this phrase from Jesus about the third day being resurrection day. But it is striking that every single gospel writer, whenever they start to discuss the resurrection, they don't use the term on the third day. Every one of them, like John 20 verse 1 says, early on the first day of the week. Why do they do that? And John emphasizes it. He repeats it later in the chapter, early on the first day of the week. That's because a new week has begun. You better believe it. Nothing, nothing is the same again once this new week of new creation has begun. Once Jesus has emerged from his rest and his finished work, new creation. Everything changes, and the gospel writers emphasize this is a new day. This is a new week. This is a new creation. In fact, when you read John's gospel, he only uses the phrase on the third day once. And when he uses it is back in chapter 2 when he talks about the wedding at Cana and he uses the third day as part of his time frame of that first week. And on the third day, what did Jesus do? He took water and he turned it into wine. That in itself, an act of new creation. This is just dripping from this gospel. It's everywhere. It's the first day of a new week. Do you get... And you can't reply to me, but do you get the overtones of Genesis 1. Do you get it coming through? This is new creation. The old week is over. The work is done, and something new is beginning. Not only in John 20 verse 1 is it the first day of a new week, but it's still dark. Okay, and that's not just a time reference. That is pointing us back to Genesis 1, where there was darkness But in the darkness is where God works. In Psalm 46 that we were looking at last week, the psalmist writes about how God will save her at the break of day. When the darkness is just about to pass and the sun is about to rise, God will move. On the first day of the week, in the midst of the darkness and the chaos of Jerusalem and the lives of the disciples that have been thrown into disarray, The Spirit of God is moving and new life is coming forth. This is a new week. This resurrection day is about hope that the old can pass away and the new can come. I want you to note where the tomb is. If you're in John 20 and you just run your eye up the page a little bit, you'll see in John 19 uh, at the very end of the chapter in verse 41, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. <laughs> imagine that. And in the garden, there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Do you think that's a mistake? <laughs> that we're back in a garden at this point? I imagine... I just I read this in a, in, a, in a sort of comical way. I think, Satan, you're so stupid that you have allowed the Son of God to be crucified on something that's described elsewhere in the Bible as a tree <laughs> and that it's in a garden. I'm like, could you not see this coming that we're back in the garden and there is a tree of life For all who will come to it, Satan, did you not see what's about to happen here? We're in a garden. It's the first day of the week. It's dark. And light is about to come forth out of the darkness. Jesus is doing the work of new creation. Later on in chapter twenty. After the disciples, Mary Magdalene is the, is the first one at the tomb, which is a beautiful thing in itself, that the first witness to the resurrected Christ was a lady. She's there. Peter and John come along and they have a look in and they see that Jesus is not there and they head back again to their homes. But Mary stays. Mary Magdalene remains at the, at the tomb Crying in verse 11. Now picture the scene. We're in a garden. Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been. One at the head and the other at the foot. What does John want us to see with these two angels, and why does he have them positioned in the tomb so that Jesus is in between them, and one of them is at the head, and one is at the feet of where his body had been. His body is not there in this verse. He's gone, but they are still seated there where his body had been. I think there's two things going on here. One of them goes away back and I'll not take time to go to it but one of them goes back to if you want to read later Leviticus 16 and Exodus 25. Exodus 25 describes how the Ark of the Covenant was designed on the Ark of the Covenant on the lid there was a, a seat and at either end of the seat there were two cherubim two angels made out of gold the seat the lid in between them in the middle In Leviticus 16, we read about what actually happens on that lid. And what happens is on on a day called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, once a year, the high priest goes in to the Holy of Holies, goes to the ark, goes to the lid, and puts blood onto the lid of the ark in between the angels. And that blood on the Day of Atonement is there to atone For the sins of the nation. And what John has done here and what he's recorded is absolute genius because he has taken the body of Jesus and he's effectively set the body of Jesus on top of the Ark of the Covenant in between two angels so that we would know that what Jesus has done has atoned for sin that he has taken away the sin of the world. Whether you know it or not, your greatest problem and my greatest problem and humanity's greatest problem is sin. We have a holy God, so holy as to not even be able to look at sin. And we sin. And Jesus took away our sin, forgave our sin, Paid the price of our sin, and that's why John has him symbolically in between two angels, so that we would know that what Jesus has just done has taken away sin. Crucified in between two criminals, resurrected in between two angels. But another point, not just the the picture of the two angels on the Ark of the Covenant and, and Jesus being symbolically placed in between as an atonement for sin. That's good enough, but there's more. Do you remember who guarded the garden back in Genesis 3? At the end of Genesis 3, the man and the woman were cast out, cast out, driven out. They had eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They had rejected the tree of life. They had rebelled against God. They were cast out. An angel stood at the entrance to the garden to prevent them from coming back in. But now, this is a new week, and there has been a new work of creation done, and there are two angels, and I can imagine Jesus... Again, I'm I'm, I'm moving beyond what I have written in, in front of me, but I can imagine Jesus just saying to those two angels... Put down your swords. What I have done is I have created a way for men and women and children to come back into the garden. And it's almost as if those angels that were at the entrance to Eden have just stepped aside because Jesus has gone in between them and he's made the way clear for men and women to come back into the presence of God. Put down your swords. I have atoned for sin. I have done the work of new creation and made a way for humanity to come back into the garden, back into the presence of God. I did it by hanging on a tree, a tree that brings life, a tree of life in a garden so that people could come back into the presence of God. John is obsessed with new creation. He's obsessed with Genesis. He's obsessed with the fact that Jesus is reversing all of the effects of the fall and inviting men and women back into close, intimate relationship with God the Father. And earlier on in John, <clears throat> in chapter 6, Jesus has again, referred, he's referred back to Genesis 3 because in John chapter six thirty-seven, he says, whoever comes to me I will in no way cast out. Even his choice of words by saying, I will not drive you out. I will not cast you out. He is showing that he's going to make the way for those who have been cast out to come back into the family and presence of God. In verse 15 of chapter 20, um, Mary makes the most correct mistake you could ever make, if it's possible to make a correct mistake. It's beautiful. Jesus speaks to her and he says to her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Now, just on a side note, those words, the first words that come out of the mouth of the resurrected Jesus, who are you looking for? are exactly the same as the first words that Jesus speaks in John chapter 1 when a couple of future disciples come to him and he turns and he says to him exactly the same phrase in the Greek language. He says, who are you looking for? What are you looking for? And he says to Mary outside the tomb, what are you looking for? And she thinks that he's the gardener. In one level, she's mistaken. She doesn't recognize him She thinks he's just the gardener going around on the first day of a new week, doing his chores, doing his work in the garden. But then in a wonderful way, she is right. This is the gardener. This is the one who created the original garden from which men and women were driven out. And now he has made the way for men and women to come back into the garden, into the presence of God. This is the gardener. And just like God Himself in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, just the way God was in the garden, walking around in the garden in the cool of the day, looking for humanity that had been separated from Him by sin, so that He could make a covering for them, so that He could cover their shame. Here we have Jesus in the garden on resurrection day, the first day of a new week, the first day of new creation in a garden looking for people who have been separated from him. And that wonderful question that he asks, what are you looking for? It's a great one to chew on on resurrection day. What are you looking for? Earlier in John twenty verse two, she she has made another very logical error in that she she says in in verse in verse two she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple the one Jesus loved and said they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him now, who's they <laughs> you know who what does she think has happened in verse two they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. Grave robbers were quite common in that world. After a burial to go and to, to break into the tomb and to try to steal even the linen that was on the body, the, the spices that were there, anything else they could find. And in a way, she's, again, she has she's made a logical error in that she's, she has mistakenly thought someone has come and robbed the grave. But just like the gardener, her, her mistake is actually on one level, not a mistake, because on that day, the grave was robbed. <laughs> there was a grave robber in the garden, and his name was Jesus. And he stole the power away from death and the grave forever in this new creation. Death and the grave were not part of the original creation. They entered with Satan, with his rebellion, and with sin. And you will never see Jesus more angry than you see him in John chapter 11 when he stands at the grave of Lazarus. The language that's used there in John 11 is potent, powerful language. As he stares at a tomb in which lies the body of his friend, Jesus is absolutely furious. He is raging against death. And on resurrection day, He's the grave robber. He robbed the grave of its power. Death is swallowed up in victory. So that other writers in the Old Testament, and Paul picks it up in the New Testament, said, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? That Peter preached on the day of Pentecost and says, death could not hold him. He robbed the grave. The last point I want to make is, is still in John 20 and verse 22. Later on, on that same day, it's Resurrection Day. It's the first day of a new week. Let's just look at verse 19. Uh, On the evening of that first day of the week, just in case you didn't get it, John writes it again. It's the first day of a new week. It is Resurrection Day. It is New Creation Day. Everything is being remade And on that first day, Jesus appears in the upper room with his disciples. Shows them his hands. They're overjoyed when they see him. Verse 21, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And look what he does in verse 22. With that, he breathed on them. And he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. You remember what happened in Genesis 2 when God made man from the dust of the ground? He was not a living being. He was not in the image of God until God had breathed into him. And then he became a living being in a way that was different from all of the other animals and birds and fish that God created. God breathed into him. It is no mistake that the word for breath and spirit in the Bible are the same word. God's breath, God's spirit. And Jesus goes to the disciples on resurrection night, on the first day of a new week of new creation, and he breathes on them. And he offers them new life, the spirit, the life of God new creation. Why did Jesus die? Why was he resurrected? It was not just so that we can go to heaven when we die. It was to put forth the work of new creation, to reverse the effects of sin and Satan and death in the world, to allow the kingdom of the future, the kingdom of God, to break into this present age with new life. And note, please, that he did not say to the disciples, relax, fellas. I've risen from the dead. You're going to heaven when you die. Everything's fine. Chill out. Sit back. Take it easy. He doesn't. In verse 21, he says to them, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. There's work to do. There is a commission given. He sends them. He doesn't, he, he says nothing, and please don't misunderstand me, I believe I'm going to heaven when I die, I believe it passionately, for un, until the resurrection of the dead, I believe it, it's biblical, but he didn't just say to them, fellas, we're all going to heaven when we die, take it easy, it's fine, chill, no, he says, you're, you're being sent, you're going, this work of new creation has been done, and now there's a job for you to do. Back in the Garden of Eden, God gave Adam and Eve a job, a lot of fun. He says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. They're made in the image of God and their commission was to take the garden, to expand the garden and to fill the earth with people made in the image of God so that the earth would be covered with people showing forth what God is like and what his character is. That was the commission of the original creation. Then the fall happened in Genesis 3. And now Jesus in John has done this work of new creation all through the gospel and primarily here in his death and resurrection. And after doing that, he says to the disciples, now you need to go and expand the garden. You need to bring the good news to the whole world that if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. That the old has gone and the new has come. That's Jesus' commission in the words of Paul. That's what I believe Jesus is saying to them When in verse 21 when he sends them. Just like God said to Adam and Eve, expand, cover the earth with the image of God. Jesus, after new creation, says, now expand, get out there with the good news And see men and women being newly created, born again, filled with the spirit of the life of God, and see his image cover the earth. In his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has done the work of new creation. He has given men and women and children the opportunity to be born again. New life. And he stands before you, and just as I'm finishing, I need a drink. I'm getting agitated. <coughs> he stands before you. He's so close. We talked, I think last week, about how close God is, that God is willing to help, but God is near to those who seek Him, very near. He stands before you and he he makes the offer, let me breathe into you. Let me breathe my life. Let me breathe my spirit into you so that you would become recreated, newly created, fully alive in the image of God. Will you look any different when you look in the mirror? Unfortunately not. You'll look the same. But everything will change. As new creation, life starts to well up within you and you are restored back into the image of God that was marred by sin. You become a new creation, all things made new. Into the chaos and the darkness, and I've mentioned this every week for about the past three or four weeks, not intentionally, but into the chaos and into the darkness. In Genesis 1 The earth was without form, and it was void. It was chaotic. It was dark. And into that situation comes the Word of God. And the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. And the Word and the Spirit together, the Word and the Spirit together, bring order where there is chaos, and bring life where there was no life. And the offer that I want to give you on resurrection day 2020, with COVID-19 out there wreaking havoc in the world, the offer is of new creation and new life. Not just that, that you'll go to heaven when you die, but that in between now and then, Jesus will fill you with his Spirit and make you a new creation so that you show forth the character and the image of God in this life. This is maybe the strangest resurrection day ever, I said at the start. All around the world today, people will not encounter slick bands, nifty keynote presentations, and terrific dramatic performances in churches and in cathedrals and in town squares. The only thing that the church has today to offer is the Word and the Spirit. And it's maybe a really good reminder that that is all we've got and that is all we need. And I believe, I genuinely believe that across the world today, many, many people will receive the word of the death and the resurrection of Jesus and that they will be filled with the Holy Spirit and that they will become new creations. So I just want to put the invitation out to you on this strange resurrection day, would you be one of the number, the wonderful statistic that will not be reported on the news of people who accept the offer of new life and new creation that Jesus has achieved through his death and resurrection. It is finished. This is the first day of a new week. Amen. I'm done.